This is Bold Dominion, a state politics explainer for Changing Virginia. I'm Nathan Moore. Well, we're approaching the end of the year here in Virginia, and we have a special episode for our year in review lined up. Uh, I'm here in the studio with Alana Bittner, who you've heard me mention. You've heard her voice in the interviews the last few months. And Alana, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Nathan. Happy to be here. Yeah. And so Alana's really been doing the, the lion's share of the interviewing and production on Bold Dominion. And so how's it been going this year for you? What, do you, what, what are you finding out? It's been so much fun, actually. I've been really enjoying this. And like, I mean, I studied foreign affairs at UVA, but my knowledge of politics was either centered directly in Charlottesville or like keeping tabs about the nation as a whole. So Virginia itself, the state of politics in Virginia itself was kind of new to me. But I think over this course of being really able to dive into it, has just been fascinating. Oh, you know, it's funny It's funny you mentioned that. That's actually exactly why I started the podcast three years ago. Like, I always feel like, you know, I've got all these friends who, who keep tabs on the national scene uh, and, and know all the national news and intrigue. Some of my, you know, uh, really involved friends also know the local stuff, but state politics is kind of like this black box where, you know, we might read about this or that bill proposal, but nobody really understands actually quite how it works. Not nobody, but it's it's kind of this specialized, turgid knowledge base. And, and so it's nice to uh, have this explainer, I hope. Uh, and I hope as listeners out there uh, hearing my voice that you agree. Alana and I have, have, have pulled a few clips, some of our favorites from this year that, that kind of tell the story about some ongoing issues and trends. And so, uh, Alana, you, we're going to kick things off with your first pick. What's the story that you've got for us? What I'm kicking off with is I think it was one of the first episodes I did hear with Bull Dominion, and it was the one covering um, how citizens can craft a legislature in the General Assembly. And we're kicking it off with Sally Hudson and how she explains kind of the ins and outs of how a bill gets made and how citizens can have a role in that process. And actually, like, this was a cool episode to start off with for me because she gets into the nuts nuts and bolts of how the General Assembly works. Because I feel like so often you hear... And so often at the end of lots of these episodes, you'll hear our guests being like, so it's so important to call your Congress people, call your representatives, like so, so they can hear your voice on this. And then it's but then it's like, but then what happens after that? So you call them. Then what? What's the next step? That's often like left out. <laughs> and I think that Sally Hudson does a really good job explaining that next step pretty pragmatically as well. I think the first step, step zero, is diagnosing whether they need a new law or not. Because not every problem needs a new law to solve. Sometimes what we need to do is connect them with an organization or with a resource that already exists and is working on the thing that they care about and is just not yet on their radar. So sometimes people write into me and say, I want you to carry a bill that does X. And I say, did you know that that's already legal and organization Y can do that for you? And here's their number. Let me introduce you. Um, I, so the, I think the first question is like, do they actually need new policy or is this really just a matter of connecting them with something that's already in motion? The next step, I think, is assessing which level of government is best suited to do their job because sometimes people write to their delegate because I'm the elected official they know, but the problem that they want to solve is really better handled by the board of supervisors or the thing that they need is really a matter for the US House and Senate. It's not something that state government really handles. Like I am not the best person to call with a problem about the post office or foreign affairs because that's something that's settled by the federal government. Likewise, there's only so much that I can do as your delegate to make your trash pickup happen faster. 
But if you want to talk about something that's going on in the public schools or with labor law or, um, you know, the the pipelines or utilities, like that's the kind of stuff that's the purview of state government. So I think step one is figuring out who holds the lever that gets to work on the problem that they need. And then I think after that, it's really a matter of understanding how much support there probably already is in Richmond for the idea that they have. Because it, you, it may not be something where you need to build a big political coalition. Like it, it may be something where you can actually just bring folks together, um, legislator to legislator, because it's it's a problem that was not yet on the legislator's radar. But once you explain it to them, it seems like it's got a pretty straightforward solution. It's not super controversial. There are plenty of bills that we pass like that. In fact, those are the kind of bills that that pass most often these days. So, you know, before you think about trying to build a grassroots army, it's worth ensuring that one, you that you need one, um, and then which way to aim it. The other thing that I think can be sometimes really hard to hear for constituents is that there is only so much you can do to influence the vote of someone you can't vote for. So if you're one citizen in Charlottesville and you call me and ask me where I stand on an idea that you have and I tell you that I'm all aboard, then it doesn't help so much to get 500 people from Charlottesville on board to try to lobby my colleagues to change their minds. Like once your own delegate is on board, then you really have to start building horizontally rather than uh, just adding more people. So you have to figure out how do we get other people in other communities with other districts and representatives to share our priority in this issue? Because no amount of people from Charlottesville calling someone who serves in Virginia Beach is likely going to change their minds. It, like 500 people from Charlottesville can call Virginia Beach and there's less impact than having five people from Virginia Beach call their own delegate. In some ways, that, that can sound frustrating. But it, it's actually democracy in its purest sense, which is our job is to work for the people we work for. And I don't represent Virginia Beach. And that doesn't mean that I'm not supposed to be sensitive to their concerns. And if somebody makes a good argument for why something that affects them and not Seville is something I should care about, then my my ears are open. But it really is the job of the delegate from Virginia Beach to listen to their district. And it's my job to listen to this one. Sally Hudson represents Charlottesville and part of Albemarle County in the Virginia House of Delegates. And now she's running for state Senate as well, which is going to be a race to watch next year. So, Alana, next up, we've got uh, one of my picks. Uh, This is a story we did about Dominion, like way back at the start of 2022. But I feel like we could run this story almost any year. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Because Dominion does play such an outsized influence in in Virginia politics. It's been the biggest donor to both parties historically. There has been some movement changing that. Uh, And so in this interview, we've got Brennan Gilmore, who is the director of an organization called Clean Virginia. And in in this one, Brennan talks about, so it was great actually to learn a little bit about how Dominion got so much power and kind of how this happened in the first place. We've got this, this private company that has essentially guaranteed profits because they're a regulated monopoly, but they've managed to sort of stack the deck on those who regulate them. So this is an interview that uh, uh, one of WTGU's interns, Catherine Hansen, did with Brennan Gilmore earlier this year. So this iron grip on energy policy, how has Dominion benefited from its political contributions? There are many egregious examples. The 
energy code in Virginia, the code of law that governs our energy policy is incredibly friendly to Dominion Energy. What that means is they are essentially given money that belongs to consumers. They have written arbitrary provisions that if they overcharge Virginians, we can only get refunds up to a cap, an arbitrary cap of $50 million. That's one of the most egregious provisions in the code. That means they can charge by hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars and you don't get any money, any money back despite the fact that they've overcharged you. I like to use an analogy of going to buy a television or a car, any other consumer good, and uh, you accidentally pay a few thousand dollars too much. They overcharged you. You realize that was a mistake. But when you go back to get the money back, the car salesman or the TV salesman says, oh, I'm sorry, I'm only going to give you 50 bucks back. The other 2000, I'm just going to go ahead and keep. It's an, it's ridiculous. And we wouldn't stand for it in any other in any other sector, um, but because of the political influence of these utilities, uh, they are allowed to get away with it. You know, we call it legalized corruption, um, but they essentially have looked at their customers across the state of Virginia, not as uh, folks that they should provide a public service for, but as a, as a cash cow, as an ATM machine. And, and so their policies are by and large directed by uh, an impulse to maximize value for their shareholders. Yeah, I read that in recent years, Dominion kept hundreds of millions of extra dollars in profit. And now there seems to be more pushback from the General Assembly against Dominion's influence because of the advertisements put out by a PAC funded by Dominion against Governor Yunkin. Why is this bipartisan support growing more now than in previous years? Let me just start by saying there has always been bipartisan support for getting Dominion's uh, malign influence out of our politics. It hasn't been overwhelming. It's still not overwhelming, but it has grown remarkably in the past few years. I think there's a few reasons for this. One is historically Dominion wasn't always as bad of an actor as they have been in the past decade. There used to be a uh, some sort of firewall between the holding company, which looked at you know how to maximize profit and shareholder interest, and the utility, which was supposed to be just providing a, a basic public service. Um, with some restructuring that they did in their uh, corporate uh, structure about uh, two decades ago, that firewall collapsed, and they started looking at the utility just as a money-making machine. Um, and so in doing that, in the past decade, they passed several bills which essentially tied the hands of their regulators and and stop and stopped them from being able to set rates fairly. Um, and so we saw, you know, since the since 2015, um, well over two billion dollars that was taken from Virginians above what the utility was owed. And as uh, as legislators realized this, uh, they became, you know, quite fed up. And so the numbers uh, of legislators that that were hearing from their constituents on this and who the, they themselves realized that this was a, a deeply unjust system started growing. Um, and so we've seen, uh, uh, you know, a lot more support for the idea of getting their influence out of politics. The incident you mentioned um, that happened in the in past year's campaign for governor was Dominion funded a, uh, a essentially a dark money pack to try to hit Governor Yunkin from the right over the issue of guns. It was a, a dark money play and it was funded uh, overwhelmingly by Dominion Energy and it was funded by their top uh, executives and lobbyists as well. And this prompted um, Governor Yunkin 
to speak out very firmly against the role of Dominion Energy in Virginia politics on the campaign trail. Uh, and it also angered a lot of Republicans who, who questioned why in the world a electric utility was funding dark money at attacks against a Republican governor candidate. I think you know it's a lot of a lot of politicians when they saw this had a wake up call because you would again to use another analogy uh, you know you would never have your water authority or your sewer authority or the roads authority um, doing this you know doing these kind of dirty plays in politics so why in the world should your electric utility be doing it either. Electric utilities are, are, are supposed to be public service corporations. Unfortunately, Dominion has largely abandoned the public service motive, uh, and its its responsibility is, uh, as it sees it, is first and foremost to make as much money as it can off of its captive consumers in Virginia. Brennan Gilmore is the executive director of Clean Virginia, an advocacy organization that tries to rein the influence of Dominion and also advocate for green energy around the state. And I will say we recorded that interview while the 2022 General Assembly session was still in session and before the bill had been killed that would have actually reined in Dominion some. And so it was another year where there were some moderate proposals to to change the way Dominion's corporate influence and lobbying power exists. And once again, it, it failed. But it seems to be like gathering steam over the years. So maybe. Yeah. One thing uh, elsewhere in that interview with Brennan is that, um, you know, we're up to a fairly substantial number of, of the Democratic politicians, at least, that have pledged to not take Dominion money uh, mm -hmm. uh, as far as, as campaign contributions go. Um, I don't know if any Republicans have joined that pledge or not. But um, but that is a pledge that Clean Virginia tries to get lawmakers to take. And, and the whole question of campaign finance and, and how much the whole system needs to be overhauled in this state is a much bigger conversation. Yes. We, we, we should, did discuss it. Did we discuss that in another episode? We, we do. We discuss that at least once a year. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, uh, well, what do you have next for us, Alana? So up next, I pulled a clip from the episode covering what's behind Yunkin's parents' rights rhetoric. Mm. And this is with um, Graham Muma the reporter for Virginia Mercury. This was one that we did, I think, a couple of weeks before the midterms. And it was kind of on my mind at a time when many people, I think, were looking to Yunkin's playbook as to how he like flipped Virginia red. And a lot of that had to do with this this very repetitive rhetoric about parents' rights. And then that was getting picked up by other candidates running across the country. And so... I wanted to dive a little bit further into that because it's a different interpretation of parents' rights than has been traditionally seen in like the Virginia court system and also just across the U.S. in general. One thing that I appreciate about this particular quote is that Graham Muma seems to be able to take a step back from maybe the culture war uh, battle rhetoric going on and see like in the bigger picture, like how will this actually affect how the courts and the legal system interpret parents' rights and whether it will somehow change that traditional interpretation of it. I think there are parents who do feel a little bit disempowered or frustrated by the way the pandemic went. So I think part of its power is it is such a broad term that can mean sort of whatever you want it to mean. And it just it sounds obvious on its on its face that parents matter that I think that's that's the value in it. But, you know, the other side is obviously that it is it is so vague that when they say parents matter, what they're talking about a certain type of parent, a socially conservative parent, it is not just respecting the wishes of of all types of parents and trying to make sure that schools work for all types of families as opposed to just one type. 
And I, I think the first real legal impact that this has had, there, there has been a lawsuit over should parents have full control over deciding whether their kid should or shouldn't wear a mask in school. And at the ACLU sued, I think, on grounds that it violated the Americans with Disabilities Act, that if you give parents full discretion, you are discriminating against parents and families of kids who might have a condition that makes them uniquely vulnerable to COVID by saying no mask, no mask mandates. You just have to let each parent decide for themselves. You might be eliminating the school's ability to follow the ADA by saying, okay, if we have a kid who has unique medical needs in a specific classroom, we should be able to have a mask mandate, a limited mask mandate just for that particular class to protect that particular child. I'm not exactly sure where that lawsuit ended up, but I think Democrats would point to that and say that is what they mean when there are there are limits to parents' rights. It can't just be a free-for-all. Every parent gets to decide for their own kid because there are circumstances where there is a clash between parents' rights and other types of rights. You know, there's always kind of like a hot hot topic of the day that kind of ebbs and flows. And I think the further we get away from the pandemic and some of the culture war battles of the day, you know, I don't I don't know that it'll be sort of a sustained thing where every election cycle candidates are getting a question about where they stand on parents' rights. But I think from a legal perspective, I think there are a lot of unanswered questions that we're going to have to see how they play out in the court, specifically on the transgender students' policies. There is a lawsuit in Harrisonburg right now where a conservative group is pointing to Virginia's law specifically to say that any policy where the schools kind of keep a secret that a kid has transitioned at school violates that law. That lawsuit was heard, I believe, last week, and there should be a ruling coming up fairly soon. So I think it's going to be interesting to watch what kind of balancing act the courts strike in figuring out some of these kind of new issues where there have not been rulings to show do the parents' rights outweigh the rights of the student in that case, or or does the student's rights is that more important than what their parent wants? So I think like just over the last century, really, this has kind of evolved through the courts case after case after case. The courts are going to have to step in and just figure out what does parents' rights actually mean for each one of these specific issues. Graham Mumal is a reporter at Virginia Mercury. And Alana, you actually tracked some of the cases that he just mentioned. What what came of those? Yeah, so it's interesting how with both of those cases that he mentioned in that particular clip, the courts ended up resolving it in such a way that actually stayed in the more tr- like like interpreted parents' rights in the more traditional sense, less expansive sense. You know, it's funny you were talking before the clip about Yunkin and 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 how he kind of rode this wave and and tried to use the same formula for the midterm elections when he was, you know, jetting around the country trying to help Republican candidates for U.S. Congress get elected. It didn't really work. Most of the people he campaigned for didn't win, and so I think there's some question here as we look toward 2023 whether where the Yunkin's sheen on the national level is going to maintain. And, and I don't know. I mean, it may not. That's sort of something that we'll keep seeing. Maybe he'll he'll stay in Virginia and, and try to govern. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that's good or bad. <laughs> um, we've got another one coming up. This is, um, okay, so a big story that was a really a national story, but also had big Virginia implications was uh, the Supreme Court uh, overturning Roe v. Wade. And so that immediately triggered a number of states to like immediately ban or put severe restrictions on abortion access. A whole bunch of other states are now considering or, or in the process of doing the same. Virginia is not one of those. Uh, we are surrounded by a, a couple states, a few states that actually do severely limit or even outright prohibit abortion uh, care. 
but we are not one of them. And there is still a, a Democratic majority in the state Senate. And so even if something were to pass the state house, we have a firewall of sorts on that particular policy. We talked with Tannis Fuller, who's the director of the Blue Ridge Abortion Fund, about what abortion access in Virginia is going to look like, what changes are going to be coming down the pike with this new policy regime that we're living in. Virginia occupies a really great, and I'm going to say unusual because 10 years ago, I would never have thought we would be here as a state that has relatively protected access to abortion care for the time being. And we do expect that over the course of the next year, at least, that Virginia will receive patients from states where abortion has become highly restricted and or impossible to access. Virginia lawmakers, particularly Virginia senators, are influential in keeping that access and abortion through the next year, through the next General Assembly. They control the committee's in the Senate and therefore can prevent anti-abortion legislation from reaching a floor vote. They are confident that they will be able to hold that line for the next year. Whether or not that protection continues in Virginia will depend very much on the next election. What general consequences do you think this decision will have for the state of Virginia? I think the consequences of this decision will impact Virginia in increased um, competition for available appointments. This changes, right, because sometimes clinics don't have a provider or they don't have staff and so they're not able to see patients at that moment. But we have generally accessible abortion care in Virginia, but competition for appointments is going to become more of a reality. And so folks who are seeking care from out of state, right, we saw this in Texas. This is like We know exactly what's going to happen because we saw what happened in states surrounding Texas after SBA was passed. And so we'll start to see a ripple effect of limited access for an enormous number of people. In response to this kind of uncertain political standing, how have you and other abortion activists and organizations prepared yourselves for these changes? Blue Ridge Abortion Fund in particular is one of five organizations, five other abortion funds in the Mid-Atlantic who have been part of a grant award starting a year or so ago that recognized that the Mid-Atlantic would be influential in any negative Supreme Court decision. So we received grants to staff up our organizations, which has been really helpful, right? Because an organization that has staff can better respond to the needs of the people that we are serving. What have we done to prepare? Well, we have staff now. And also we have been working to tighten our connections to abortion funds that are in other states, particularly states where abortion may be harder or impossible to access, as well as to establish relationships with clinics in states that we have not historically had relationships with, like Pennsylvania and New Jersey, because we do anticipate a lot more of that travel. We see travel now for abortion care. This is not new. People have been traveling for abortion care for a long time, for a variety of reasons. But that travel will become more complicated and will require more distance, I think, as I was talking about people competing for appointments. We'll start to see people from Virginians who might have to travel to New Jersey or they might have to travel to Pennsylvania for care. And so we have been working really diligently over the last six months to establish relationships with those clinics and other funds so that when we need to work together to ensure patient care, we already have a baseline established for how we all can work together because it is the strength of community and relationships that pull us through crises. And that's what we're looking at. One of the best things that people can do is to find their local abortion fund and start a monthly donation. One of the paths forward for this was, is going to be money. Be patient. There are a lot of people who want to get involved right now. And we are navigating both that response as well as the work that we do to support callers every day. Um, We are asking people to really be 
clear with your friends and your community members that you are not just pro-choice, but you are pro-abortion. We have to start thinking about how we're going to make abortion available in Mississippi again, because it's not enough that you can get an abortion in California and New York and Illinois. That will never be enough. And the way that we're going to make abortion available in Mississippi again is to change the culture around abortion. And the way that we change the culture about abortion is stop being quietly supportive, which also contributes to abortion shame and stigma. And to be just really clear, abortion is normal. Abortion is healthcare. You know, everybody loves someone who's had an abortion. And at this moment, everybody loves someone who's going to need an abortion. Little music mixed in there. Uh, Tannis Fuller is the director of the Blue Ridge Abortion Fund based here in Charlottesville. And uh, we recorded that actually before the official Roe v. Wade decision had been made. It was just after the leak of the Supreme Court uh, draft decision. Of course, it did go into effect. And now um, the Blue Ridge Abortion Fund is like all the other abortion funds around the country, accepting donations and, and trying to provide health care access to, to women who need it. All right, so we have one more clip to round out the show, and we, you know we've been kind of covering like like, like big topics today: um, how to craft laws and Dominion's influence, and 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 Yunkin and parents' rights, and then abortion. These are big issues in our in our country today. There's one though that's been kind of like an ongoing historical story almost. Um, now there has been some progress in kind of an interesting way, but um, you know Virginia has not been what you'd call a, a, a union stronghold. <laughs> yeah, this is something that I found so fascinating: is how Virginia was one of only three states in the entire country that banned any type of public sector collective bargaining. Like Virginia was incredibly behind the curve in that sense until 2020 when the General Assembly passed a law that allowed localities to pass ordinances for collective bargaining. So now we're in this weird like transitional state where it's not it's no longer banned, but locality by locality can choose to opt in or not. And so that's like creating a whole new interesting patchwork of which places are being allowed to collect a bargain and for which people and to what extent. We explore that in this episode. But to start it off, I, I started with a clip from Mel Borja of the Commonwealth Institute. I think she did a really good job explaining how just because Virginia policy has been anti-collective bargaining, that hasn't necessarily meant that there hadn't been strong worker organization throughout the history of the state. So she really lays that out. So she starts off the clip and then it wraps up with uh, David Broderf, who is the president of the union, Virginia SEIU 512. If you look at Virginia labor history, workers have been organizing since the Commonwealth's founding, and they've been organizing across race and ethnicity, age, background, and sector. They've organized in the mines of Southwest Virginia. They've organized in the shipyards of Newport News, Starbucks locations in in like Northern Virginia, Leesburg and Central Virginia, hospitals in Charlottesville, textile factories in Danville, and, and so much more. And I think when we talk about the type of gains that workers have been able to make through that, I think it's important to like see that history for what it is. And the, as we talk about like worker suppression in Virginia, because they're actually a lot more linked than people realize. We we can see that Virginia history is a history of labor organizing. And in response to that, corporations and politicians have been very, very aggressive in trying to shut it down um, because that type of worker solidarity is threatening to people in power. I think what happened in 2020 is that Virginia's politicians finally caught up to where Virginia's workers have always been, right? What happened is obviously there was a moment where workers worked very hard. So union members, not yet union members, community members worked tremendously hard to elect politicians 
who shared their values. And that meant a democratic trifecta, but this was not the old Democrats, right? This was really about electing a democratic trifecta, but within there, electing Democrats who were going to fight for workers in the House and in the Senate. And I think that that was the moment. And then workers really leaning in, being at the General Assembly every single day to make sure that we passed a bill that really brought Virginia in line with the rest of the country. And let me just say that that law was probably the most consequential piece of labor law reform that we've seen in Virginia. And at the same time, was the smallest of first steps that could have been taken, right? Both of those things are true. What it did was it repealed the ban on collective bargaining for county and city workers, but it leaves the ban in place for state workers, for state higher ed workers, for so many frontline workers, particularly black and brown women who provide essential jobs with public funding, like home care workers and child care workers. And so we have a lot more work to do to make sure that all public employees, that all workers have the right to join a union if they so choose. It also was a, the smallest of first steps because it didn't create any kind of state labor board or any kind of state standards. What it allowed was localities to opt in, but to create their own standards for bargaining. And so we have a really piecemeal system of collective bargaining that a future General Assembly, regardless of party, is going to have to come back and fix and set some standards. That was David Broder of SEIU, Virginia. And before that, Mel Borja of uh, the Commonwealth Institute. Well, you've been listening to Bold Dominion. This is our year in review episode. Alana, thanks so much for, for pulling these clips and making it all happen this year. Thanks so much. It was so fun to look back and reflect and see what we had covered. It's it's such a, such a wide variety of topics and there's so much more to come in the year to come. That's right. That's right. The assembly session starts in like, oh, I don't know, a few weeks. And uh, <laughs> there'll be a whole new raft of, of bills and legislation and, and probably some gridlock because we have a split Congress. But keep on tuning in to Bold Dominion, the state politics explainer. You can follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever fine podcasts are served up. And please go ahead and leave us a nice review while you're there. Bold Dominion is a member of the Virginia Audio Collective. Please find all the podcasts at virginiaaudio.org. Alana, thanks again. Thank you. My name's Nathan Moore. Stay safe and enjoy your holiday.